teaching text today comes from John 20, 19 to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you have joined us. I miss all of you very much. I don't even have the words to say, really, for how much I can't wait for us all to be able to be back together. Um, I hope you were taking care and finding uh, some joy in, in all of this and making it through these difficult days. Um, sometimes the timing of when you hear or read something uh, can make all the all the difference. And I, I came across uh, these words this week, and I knew them. I had heard them referenced before, uh, but I didn't know their full context. Um, these words are found in a poem that got its title from, actually from the nickname of a church community, Little Gidding. And uh, it's the final uh, of the four quartets written by uh, T.S. Eliot. It was published amidst the trauma of war. And this one section just made me have one of those moments where you look up and you take a deep breath and you just say yes in, in your like soul. Um, I'll just give you the, the section that first sort of got me there. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from ex exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. To arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Something about the beauty of that just gripped my heart. The first tragedy of the scriptures uh, occurs in Genesis with a traumatic failure in a garden. Uh, it's not the first story, but it is the first tragedy. And uh, we, many of us are familiar with it, but in case you're not, deception is present, temptation is present, there is the allure of control, uh, there is the craving of appetites, and people choose to go their own way. They choose to live as if they are their own God. Um, then we immediately afterwards see them, see them hiding. Uh, 
God comes and instead of peace, there is anxiety and insecurity. Uh, for the first time ever, and imagine that, for the first time ever experiencing the trap of fear. All manner of devastation pours out from that failure in the garden uh, because every level of our relational world uh, and creation itself gets broken. Death sweeps through. There's spiritual uh, and eventually physical death. But right from the beginning, we have these hints, clues, reminders, even declarations that God is not content to leave things as they are, that God is committed to healing and repair and redemption in, in our world at, at every level. And that, that movement of, of redemption and healing and repair, we sort of track with it all through the scriptures. And then, uh, and then ages later, uh, we, we, we see this finally being realized, and it's taking place in another garden. Uh, as Jesus is, is committing to go and bear the full burden of that first failure uh, of the death that swept through our story as he's preparing to go to the cross. And as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, this famous moment where he sweats drops of blood and he, he says, is there any other way that, that, that this could be accomplished? And um, it ultimately says to the Father, not my will but yours be done. We also know what's going on with his close friends. The disciples fall asleep again and again. They, uh, they, they're not there for Jesus in that crucial moment. Then finally when the guards come, they sort of try to rally to his support, but there's clumsy violence involved, and Peter you know, slashes a guard's ear off. Eventually they're scattered, and they leave him, and then famously uh, even Peter out, outright denies him. That's where we saw the disciples last. The reading we just heard from John 20, the last time we saw them, um, they were in the midst of a failure in a garden, and now they are hiding. And that should uh, clue us in. John, uh, the gospel writer John, does not want us to miss this. He opens his book, uh, if you remember in John 1, he opens his book with, with creation, uh, and now he is showing us new creation. And he's been building this throughout the entire book. You remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Basically saying this person, Jesus, that we're about to meet has been there in the community of the Trinity, of this of this God who is, who is mind-blowingly different than us and yet is revealing himself to us, uh, that God... Um, this Jesus has been there from the beginning. And then later he says, This word, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John begins his gospel uh, showing us the original creation moment. And then through the redemption, the healing, the repair that Jesus is bringing in the world, he's showing us how new creation begins. And in this new creation, we can't miss, we have the repair, the undoing of that old failure in the garden. We have this new life breaking out. So Genesis tells us some important details that should be in our minds as we get to this moment in, in, John, in John 20. Uh, Genesis tells us uh, God breathed on them in Genesis to give them life. And I love Catherine Boatwright, if you've been tracking with our daily reflections this, uh, this week, had a beautiful daily reflection about the breath of God this week. Genesis tells us God breathed on them to give them life. Genesis tells, them, tells us um, that they used to walk with God in the cool of the evening breeze. Just beautiful imagery. And now what we just read is that it is the evening of the first day 
of new creation. Our minds should be, should be firing in that direction. And what does Jesus come to do? He comes to breathe on them. The same word is used for wind, for breath, for breeze. What is Jesus going to come in the cool of the evening and say to these disciples who last we saw failing in the garden, now we see hiding? What is the word of new creation? What does God want to say to them after the failure in the garden? And if you go back to Genesis, the words that are spoken after that failure in the garden are really intense. They're, they're, um, they're, they're sad. They're devastating on multiple levels. But here Jesus has no curse for them because he has taken the curse on himself. <laughs> on Good Friday, what we celebrate on Easter is that Jesus has taken the curse on himself, and instead he speaks peace to them. Three times in ten verses, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. When the scriptures want to emphasize something to us, uh, they repeat it. <laughs> Uh, when they want to trumpet it from the mountaintops and spread it all over the earth, they repeat it three times. You see it uh, over and over again. God's not just holy. You hear the heavenly choir proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And to those who are locked away in failure, those who are traumatized by fear, those who are on the run for their lives, and, and you, if you are locked away behind closed doors right now, if you're shut away in fear and insecurity, if you feel trapped in some pattern of thought or behavior or sin, Jesus says to you and me, peace, 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 peace be with you. Wherever you are right now, the message of the Easter resurrection of Jesus is peace be with you. Shalom, family. <laughs> Ephesians 2 summarizes for us and says, For he himself is our peace. He's removed that dividing wall of separation. He is our peace with God. He, and that, that, that's right, the, the peace that begins to repair all the other uh, sort of levels of our relational lives. He, is, he begins to make peace amongst us, peace with one another. That, that deep need that we have for peace in the deepest level of the identity of our soul, that God would speak peace and love and acceptance to us, to embrace a family forever. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace in our innermost being. And then these are actually the words of peace that are going to lead to the renewal of the, wor of the world. This is the first words of peace of new creation. I, I want you to think for just a second. Imagine yourself, put yourself in the place of these disciples, locked away in fear. Years before, they had given up so much. They had given up their careers, attachments with their families, so much of their lives. They had given up to follow this man, Jesus. And, and for that, they had seen incredible things, to be sure. They had seen him healing people. They had seen him giving sight to the blind. They had seen him feeding the hungry and, and welcoming in the outcast. They had, they had heard him say astonishing things. The kingdom of God looks like this. It looks like a son returning home. It looks like a mustard seed. All these unbelievable descriptions and parables of the kingdom and it was starting to come together as, as a reality that they were actually going to get to have a share in. They had let their hopes grow as high as the heavens. Um, they, had, they had even hoped that right now they were going to see him kick out the, the, the uh, occupying force of Rome and become king. And then everything had turned for them. As high as their hopes had gotten, they had been that much more crushed by disappointment and despair. They couldn't stop him from walking into the trap that was laid for him. 
They had fallen asleep and scattered at his most needed moment. He had been arrested. He had been brutally beaten and, and had been killed, and, and they weren't there. Only one of them could even stand to watch. And now they know that it's over. It is absolutely over, <laughs> and that they are quite possibly being hunted. Uh, they are locked away in shame and fear and regret, vulnerability and weakness. That is the place we find the disciples on this first evening where they don't know new creation has begun. They're locked away after, after, after this, this trauma in shame, fear, regret, vulnerability, and weakness. Dr. Besser, uh, Bessel uh, van der Kolk, in his uh, wonderfully helpful book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, says this, It takes tremendous energy to keep functioning while carrying the memory of terror and the shame of utter weakness and vulnerability. While we all want to move beyond trauma, the part of our brain that is devoted to ensuring our survival deep below our rational brain is not very good at denial. Long after a traumatic experience is over, it may reactivate at the slightest hint of danger and mobilize disturbed brain circuits and secrete massive amounts of stress hormones. This precipitates unpleasant emotions, intense physical sensations, and aggressive actions. In my previous readings of this story in, in, in John's account of the gospel, I haven't really delved that deep into the thought that the disciples had been through trauma because, uh, honestly, because what Christ has been through is so much worse and um, and it's sort of like it's it's easy to miss what what they ha- had been through when you think of what Christ had been through. But what I have found in my my life and experience is that comparing pain uh, rarely actually helps, um, and, and rarely helps uh, me make sense of the situation. These disciples indeed had been through through trauma, and I think it's really powerful what what uh, v- Dr. Vanderkolk says there. It takes tremendous energy to keep functioning. I think that helps us place ourselves with the disciples on this evening. We can imagine that. It takes tremendous energy uh, to keep functioning. How, how, about, how much energy does it keep, take to keep functioning when the whole planet is in the midst of trauma? What, 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 what then? We're learning something about this. Uh, it is truly an unprecedented moment. These disciples had been through trauma. So how are they going to begin to heal? The theology of redemption that is taking place in Good Friday and Easter and these uh, appearances to, to his, his followers and friends, uh, the theology of redemption that is taking place in these moments with Jesus is absolutely earth-shattering. It means uh, that anyone who calls on this Jesus can have peace with God, can join in his kingdom, can join in the renewal of the world. But don't miss how earth-shattering it is that Jesus has their healing in mind as well. That is truly remarkable that he is coming in to care for their hearts and to speak not just this overarching theological reality as powerful as it is that we can be brought in. He, He is coming to care for the tenderness of their hearts, for the brokenness of this moment. In the body keeps the, the score. Dr. Vanderkolk uh, recounts a moment where, uh, as he was uh, sort of coming to uh, some of the important learnings that were going to feed this this book, um, he recounts a moment where Harvard professor Elvin Simrad said to him, uh, "Healing depends on experiential knowledge. You you can be fully in charge of your life only if you can acknowledge the reality of your body in all its visceral dimensions." 
Healing depends on experiential knowledge. Our deepest wounds, our deepest fears, our traumas, rarely do they heal just by being told, listen, things are going to be okay, right? How often has that worked uh, for you? And Dr. Vander Kolk's book is, is, is showing uh, through decades of research and decades of clinical experience that, that medicine, uh, as important as it, as it is, as traditional talk therapy, certainly these, these are helpful in, in, help, in someone healing from trauma. But often we have to get our bodies all the way involved. Often we have to have corrective relational experiences, not something we can do on our own by any means or even just with one other person. We need healing in community. We need healing at every level. And way before The Body Keeps the Score was was. Published, Jesus knows this. He knows this about uh, us as human beings. He, he shows up and he breathes on them. He doesn't just give them a lecture. He shows them his hands and his side. In the next chapter, he's going to perform some theater. He's going to recreate the exact scene of Peter's betrayal. And then he's going to rewrite the script. He's going to retell the story to heal Peter's heart. He's going to make them a fish breakfast on the beach. He's forgiving their sins, but he's also sharing a meal with them. He is sending them to represent him. And he is giving them peace, peace, peace beyond anything they have ever known the type of peace that has gone through death and come out clean on the other side. That is the Easter message. Jesus speaks peace to them, but then he also gives them peace in the person of the Holy Spirit. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I don't know if this part has ever confused you. It certainly has for for me, where Jesus tells them, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. What what, what does that that mean? Uh, Jesus himself got a lot of flack when he went around saying to to people, your sins are forgiven, because the accusation was, oh, hey, hang on a minute, only God can forgive sins. And it is certainly a clue into what Jesus was claiming about his own life, and, and gradually the disciples had come to realize that. But what is he doing? when he's saying to them that they're going to go and represent that same reality. And and I don't have the time uh, in in this moment to speak to all the nuances here, but I do want to say at least this, um, that of course uh, they are going to be able to speak God's forgiveness as they become representatives of Jesus, his gospel, his kingdom, by being full of the Spirit of God. So it is the Spirit of God in them that is going to give them the power and the authority and the discernment to represent this gospel, to represent this message of forgiveness. Something N.T. Wright wrote really helped me with some of the mystery of this. Um, I hope this will be helpful to you as well. He, He says, There is all the difference in the world between something being achieved and something being implemented. The composer achieves the writing of the music. The performers implement it. The clockmaker designs and builds the wonderful clock. The owner now has to set it to the right time and keep it wound up. Jesus has accomplished the defeat of death and has begun the work of new creation. His followers don't have to do that all over again. This, by the way, is why the early church didn't exactly say the same things he said. That confuses people. 
who think that Jesus was just a great moral or spiritual teacher. They wonder why his followers kept talking about him instead of simply repeating what he had said. The answer is they were implementing his achievement, not trying to duplicate, not trying to duplicate it. That would have been the real disloyalty. So in a very real way, Jesus is giving his disciples spiritual authority to implement the victory that he has won. And how many of them, by the way, do you think after he has just literally resurrected them from this moment of utter failure and defeat and disappointment and trauma and despair, and he has utterly forgiven them, how many of them do you think went around withholding forgiveness from others who were in need of it? So Jesus comes at their most terrified, locked away moment, and he speaks peace. He speaks the peace of new creation. He speaks the peace of forgiveness and new life. He speaks the peace of giving them the Holy Spirit. But what if you weren't there? Of course, we don't get to live in this exact moment with them, but also one of the disciples was missing, Thomas. And what if you missed this moment of all moments? Right? What if you went through the whole journey of, of, of the calling and the faith to leave and the courage to follow and even as things got more and more intense, you went through the entire journey and you were also there for the hard moments, for the failure and for the trauma, for the scattering. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's how he's known to history. But, but this, this man had shown many, many moments of courageous faith. And when Jesus was finally heading to Jerusalem, knowing that it was going to more than likely cost him his life, it was Thomas who said, even though it's a little bit difficult to make out his tone, it was Thomas who said to the other disciples, come, let us go with him so that we may die with him. This man was, was ready and willing to give his entire self to the person of Jesus and to the movement of the kingdom of God. And he misses the moment that Jesus shows up. He's not there. Maybe it's because of his frustration and despair and he just couldn't handle it anymore. But some of you know this feeling very well. It, 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 for you, it seems like it is always someone else who has had the God experience. You never feel like it really lands for you. And I, I want to say Thomas wasn't a man who didn't know faith. Uh, or, or, or what it meant to believe and to trust and to have courage. He was a man that had been crushed by the world and disappointment, who had taken a real hard look at things and had said, this is immensely difficult. He was a man who had lost everything, and then he missed the miraculous moment when it got better. And so he said, I'm not going to believe until I see what I need to see, until my body gets involved. I need to feel it. And some of you are, are in exactly that same place. I love all of your ideas. I need to feel it. My prayer is that you would, that you would sense Jesus showing up in the room where you are, even if the door is locked and speaking uh, amidst all the uncertainty, all the fear, all the brokenness, all the doubt. <laughs> he would speak to you peace and you would know it in your inner being, in your inner person. Thankfully, Thomas shows us that we are more than one moment, uh, that, that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can be brought to new life. Jesus gave him what he needed, but he, he also gave him more. Listen, this, this is, this is the, the moment, right? A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked again, right? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. 
John has been building his account of the gospel to this very moment. He has hinted at it all along the way. But do you know what? Doubting Thomas is the first person in John's gospel to ever address Jesus directly as God. Jesus shows him his body. He gets his whole self involved. And then he speaks right to his hiding heart. And he calls him out like a father. Stop doubting and believe. Come into the light. Come to the light. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God, this good Jewish boy who had no concept whatsoever that Yahweh who shook the mountain and led his ancestors out of slavery in Egypt could come in the form of a person. There was no concept for that whatsoever. And yet somehow this man who had been somehow his neighbor and had also called him into this friendship and relationship and now had now demonstrated that he really was God in flesh, that he really was revealing what what God was like to them. And, And Thomas is the first one to say, my Lord, my God. Maybe we're right to call him doubting Thomas. Maybe his faith was the flimsiest, and maybe yours is. But the strength is not found in, in like the this, this strength of how much we feel it. That's not, that's not what makes our faith. The faith is in what we put it in. It is in the object. It is in the person that we are trusting. And that is filled with great power. And the curse from the first garden is being rewritten. And one of the men who's watching this moment as Thomas gets his body involved and, and, and experiences the peace of Jesus and says, my Lord, my God, he, he begins to, to make sense of it. And later in his life, Peter would write, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, that flimsy thing, are shielded by God's power. So God pouring his power through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Church in quarantine. Hear these words. These are Easter words. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Peace be with you. T.S. Eliot's poem that we referenced in the beginning, it gets right to the end, and it says, Quick now, here now, always, a condition of complete simplicity and costing not less than everything, and all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. This is not trite sentiment because of Easter. This is not ignoring the pain. This is facing the cross and coming to the resurrection so that we can hear Jesus say to us with resurrection power in his voice, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, will you come through the doors? Will you come right to the place each person who is listening to this is? Uh, any way that we are, we are physically or emotionally or spiritually hiding from you, we are thinking that the failures define us, that our identity is tarnished, or that we have no idea what the future is going to be, would you come and would you speak peace to us? Would you come and remind us of the inheritance of grace that is, is ours in your gospel? Would you, would you call us to be family again, sons and daughters? Would you get our, 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 our every level of our life involved, God? Would you, would you heal us? Would you speak peace to us? 
Would you begin to bear the fruit of your kingdom, of your gospel in our lives? God, whether we're turning to you today for the first time or for the millionth time, I pray we would sense your embrace, that we'd feel your nearness. God, we long for you. We thank you for the power of these words. Continue to speak in the secret place, in the personal place to each of us in our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to sing out our hearts to God. We're going to prepare as we're, we're going to receive the meal in just a moment. Peace be with you. Amen. Church, as we consider what we just read and meditated on, how important it was for the disciples to see Jesus' body, to know that he had indeed passed through death, but was standing right in front of them, was able to embrace them, was able to, to share a meal with them, and how important it is for our healing, for our ongoing connection to the power of this gospel, that we're not just toying around with ideals, we have a meal to, to eat, to go into our bodies, to nourish us. We are nourished by this meal, nourished by this, this grace this um, broken body which is for us, this shed blood which forever secures that we can be forgiven, that we can be healed, that the uh, old curse of the first garden is being undone and re rewritten and that we can join with God in the renewal of all things. Let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts now to receive this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, I just pray over this meal, over the bread and the cup. May you bless them as your Sons and daughters receive the meal in their homes all across our city and world. Would you nourish them with your grace? Would you speak your peace to us? Peace that is beyond human understanding. Resurrection peace. Easter peace. Bless us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Churches, you are ready. Receive the meal. <laughs> 